This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Samantha Mothern, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Harvard University. Her new book, Kassira is just out from Routledge. Ernst Kassira was a leading neo-Kantian who developed a systematic view of how we construct and experience culture, widely construed to include mathematics, science, religion, myth, art, politics, ethics, and other social endeavors. In Kassira, Mather explains how he updates Kant to develop his critical idealism in the form of a distinction between substance and function the mind-dependent objects we cognize, and the structure of our minds that these objects depend on. He uses this view in his broad philosophy of symbolic forms, unpacking the way we build up the cultural world around us and our lived experience in that cultural world. Mothern brings Kassir's work to life for those beyond his contemporary influences in the metaphysics of science, the philosophy of art, and the insertion of myth into the politics of fascism. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Samantha Mothern. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Carrie. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, this is you know one of the more uh, exciting books I'm I'm able to um, interview the author um, with because I came across uh, Kassirer's Substance and Function when I was in graduate school, and I was like, you know, how come nobody knows this guy? Um, and as you mentioned in the book, he was he was the subject of uh, uh, was it Schlipp, Schipp's series of living the Library of Living Philosophers, although he he died you know in the middle of that. Um, but I was also I was just fascinated by the whole uh, the I guess the structuralism, and I was thinking about it in terms of philosophy of language. But I didn't you know I, I couldn't really get anywhere with it, and so it just kind of fell into the background. Um, but I'm really glad to be, have this opportunity to get a look at his overall, you know, body of work and to really understand it. And, and reading your book made me realize, you know, I got a little bit out of fu- substance and function, but um, clearly there was a lot that I did not <laughs> did not get as a, as a grad student, kind of just working on my own on that. Um, so before we get to the book, um, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself um, and how you you know, discovered or ended up in philosophy, and then um, how you came to write this book. I was an undergrad at Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, and my sophomore year, one of my buddies and I decided to take a class called Postmodern Religious Thought. And on the first day, we read three texts all about the Abraham Isaac story. So we read Kant's take on it, Kierkegaard's take on it, and Derrida's take on it. And I had had a lot of experience doing textual analysis in sort of literary context. But the thought that you would have this very familiar story and learn three radically different philosophical lessons about it. I mean, Kant takes from the story that, you know, when Abraham's told that he should kill his son, Abraham should have thought that cannot be God because clearly God would not demand an immoral action. 
So for Kant, this is telling us something about the sort of limits of the rational limits of faith. And then Kierkegaard comes along and says, yeah, the whole point of faith is that somehow it's transcending the limits of morality and what we can rationally grasp. And then Derrida analyzing it in terms of the notion of the gift. And so I think that moment really opened up these philosophical horizons to me of thinking through a text as sort of a vehicle for working through arguments and working through ideas. And so that really got me hooked on philosophy my sophomore year of college. And then I was very fortunate um, to be at Penn at that time because Paul Geyer, you know, the the world-class Kant scholar was at Penn. Um, So my uh, sophomore year and junior year, I got to take the first critique with Paul Geyer. It's <laughs> hard for me sometimes to call him Paul even now, but <laughs> I can, we're colleagues. Um, so um, I took classes with Paul on the first critique. We also did an independent study on um, Kant's practical philosophy. And for me, there was something about Kant's system, even though I couldn't really understand, it, I mean, the first critique, the first time through, and then probably the 10th time through <laughs> just baffled me. But it seemed to me that there was something really powerful in Kant's system about really treating the human being as the most philosophically interesting thing that there really is and thinking through everything kind of from the lens of this human standpoint and the human perspective. And I I really got gripped by Kant at that point. And then I went to grad school, very convinced that the only thing that I would do forever and ever was Kant. And then my second year of grad school, I got a little tired of Kant. (laughs) Um, And so then I started doing a little bit more work on phenomenology. In fact, I made a broad announcement at some point that I had officially broken up with Kant and that I was just going to do phenomenology. (laughs) Um, But as so often happens with Kant, you just can't get away. So, So... I ended up writing a dissertation half on Kant and half on the phenomenologist Merleau-Ponty and really trying to think through kind of the role that imagination plays both in Kant's system and how that influenced Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology. So in that dissertation, there was a, I don't know, two-page interlude in which I say something like, if you want to think about the connection between Kant and phenomenology historically, Kassir is really important. And then I have some hand-wavy things to the Davos dispute between Kassir and Heidegger. Merleau-Ponty also cites Kassir quite frequently in the phenomenology of perception. Um, So that was kind of the uh, extent of my output on Kassir by the end of grad school. But I had been increasingly interested. Um, I had been reading Substance and Function and the Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, which are some of Kassir's major works with some other faculty and grads at UC Riverside, where I was a grad student. So then I defend my dissertation. And then I have that kind of dip of depression that we all get after, or at least I always get after accomplishment, kind of thinking, oh, what am I going to do next? And Brian Leiter emailed me maybe two or three weeks after I finished my dissertation and said, hey, do you want to write the volume on Kassir for the Rutledge Philosopher series? And so it was just at this moment where I really wanted to do something new and Kassir seemed like a very exciting horizon. But at that point, he was still very much a horizon. I was certainly not a Kassir expert, um, but it seemed like, I don't know, a, a next natural project for me to continue really to be thinking through this sort of relationship between Kant and phenomenology. So that, I I guess, is really the kind of origin of how I came to write this book. And for me, I think (laughs) this project, uh, it it speaks to me of the sort of Kantian that I am, or at least I aspire to be. I mean, there's many different ways of being a Kantian. um, And I think 
one way to be a Kantian and be a fabulous Kantian is to just really focus on Kant's works and get to know his system up and down. I think another way to be a Kantian is really to kind of take Kant's ideas and then radically move them forward. You might think the German idealists do this in some way. You might think the neo-Kantians do this in some way. Um, and I think for me, somehow kind of integrating these ways of being a Kantian, both the sort of scholarly, in-depth approach, but also the thought that Kant's philosophy is really this kind of dynamic living thing that moves forward in time as it's taken up in post-Kantian traditions. I think working on the Kassir project felt like a way of exploring what it is to be a Kantian in kind of the moving forward from Kant sort of way, even though it, I guess, in some sense, always comes back to Kant for me. Hmm. Well, cool. Um, so tell us a bit about Kassirer himself. I mean, he was born 1874, a Jew in, uh, I guess, what became part of Poland, but, you know, that part of Eastern Europe. Um, and he died as a exile, essentially, in New York in 1945. Um, so, I mean, that already says quite a bit, um, you know, but, um, maybe you can fill us in a bit, uh, on the, on what occurred between those two days. <laughs> Absolutely. So as you mentioned, Kassir is born, um, into a Jewish family, an affluent Jewish family that has many connections to, um, uh, the cosmopolitan Jewish community in Berlin. Kassir has many famous cousins, including Bruno Kassir, the publisher, um, including also um, Paul Kassir, who was this important art dealer, and some other neuroscientists and psychologists in the family. Um, so it was very much a kind of educated family. And Kassir goes to university in Berlin and at some point takes a class with Simmel, on, Georg Simmel on Kant, and Simmel kind of makes this offhand comment that, oh, you know, the best person working on Kant right now is Hermann Cohen, who is at Marburg. And then Simmel says, I don't know what he's saying, but <laughs> he's doing the best work. So Kassir took that as a challenge and went out, bought all of Cohen's works on Kant, and then decided to go study at Marburg, which is where Cohen was for his graduate work. Um, and so in Marburg, Cohen and another famous Marburg neo-Kantian named Paul Nautorp were really developing one of the most important schools of neo-Kantianism, known as Marburg neo-Kantianism. So Kassir kind of lands there and does his dissertation on some very classic Marburg topics, namely the topic of erkentness, which can be translated either as knowledge or cognition. And so Kassir is really trying to think through how people have approached cognition historically. And so Kassir's two, first two major works um, after he finishes his dissertation are this really ma magisterial set of books called um, The Problem of Cognition or The Problem of Knowledge, Das Erkenntnis Problem, in which he traces the development of theories of cognition from the Renaissance up through Kant. And so it is just a stunning work in intellectual history. And that was kind of how Kassir entered into the scene. Um, he was then hired as a... Um, I guess what we would call instructor, um, privat docent at Berlin. And so was working in Berlin from, I don't know, 1906 to 1919. So throughout First World War, um, Kassir publishes his first major systematic, not just historical book um, in 1910, which is Substance and Function, which you mentioned earlier. Um, which was really a, a major work that was very influential. But in spite of <laughs> these um, important publications, Kassir could not get a position as a professor um, until uh, 1919 when the University of Hamburg was first founded and that he was offered a position as a professor at Hamburg. 
So he went to Hamburg in 1919. And I have the impression that it really was a set of golden years for Kassir in Hamburg. So one of the things that made it so important was this interdisciplinary institute that got up and running in the 1920s, affiliated with the Warburg Library. So A.B. Warburg was this um, affluent um, art historian, independent scholar, who had gone all over the world just buying primary and secondary cultural texts, really, texts about myth and religion and art and language. And then they got put into a library called, um, we call it the Barberg Library. And it really became this place for humanists to gather. So philosophers, art historians like Panofsky, people working on Middle East studies, classicists, people working on literature. And it, you know, we, we so often um, kind of pay homage to the value of interdisciplinary work. But then sometimes when we get into rooms with scholars in other fields, we don't really <laughs> know what we're doing. Um, but at the Varberg Library, they really were able to collaborate and feed off each other's work as they were thinking through issues related to culture. So it was kind of in that really, I don't know, think tank seems like not quite the right word, but um, in that sort of atmosphere, the Kassir published three of his arguably most important works, um, the three volumes of the philosophy of symbolic forms, which are dedicated to culture. So the end of the 20s, 1929, big year for Kassir, we perhaps know it most for that being the year that he has this famous disputation with Martin Heidegger at Davos. But that year, he was also elected to be the rector of the University of Hamburg, which is, you know, highest position um, to be occupying. And for him, <laughs> as a Jewish person, to be occupying that position, it was really quite a um, moment. But then if you just fast forward four years to 1933, Kassir submits his resignation and goes into exile, where he remains for the rest of his life. So he first landed in Oxford and then spent much of the rest of the 30s in Sweden. And then in the early 40s, he uh, decided to do a stint over in the U.S., um, he was invited to to teach at Yale, and he always thought that he would go back. Um, but during World War II, his steamer across the Atlantic was actually the last one that was able to cross. Um, and so Kassir, um taught his last years um, first at Yale and then at Columbia and then had a heart attack on the streets of New York and um, died. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah. Yeah. What a life. <laughs> oh, yeah. It really is such an odyssey. Yeah. So, so I mean, you mentioned Marburg and Marburg Neocantians. Um, and um, so could you perhaps just give us an overview of what, what that means, um, what that means, and then how that, how that translates into, uh, I suppose it the first book, or well, not the first one, but the the substance and function book that that distinction between substance and function, which, from, my, from what I get from your book, I mean that that sort of basic distinction is you is the lens through which he uses to analyze, you know, philosophy of mathematics and then philosophy of nature, you know, natural science, and then on to the the broader cultural. Um, uh, work that he does with, as you mentioned, the philosophy of symbolic forms. But it, it starts from this neo-Kantianism and specifically Marburg neo-Kantianism and and that basic distinction that he makes. So could you could you explain that sort of philosophical outlook that he has? 
Neo-Kantianism is one of those words that could mean almost everything that's happened um, after Kant. But in this context, Neo-Kantianism refers to a movement that really dominated academic philosophy in Germany from the 1870s to around 1920s, so the end of the First World War. Uh, and it's really a movement of philosophers who are united by the slogan that I mentioned before, namely the slogan of back to Kant. So for the neo-Kantians, which was an incredibly diverse body of thinkers, the sort of general thought behind why we need to go back to Kant um, was a certain crisis that they were seeing about the ongoing role of philosophy in the face of rapid advances in natural science. So, you know, philosophers, as they're trying to think about, say, the nature of the world or the nature of the mind, you might think, why do we need philosophers to do that if we have science to do that for us? And you know, this is a familiar question that we as philosophers still face today. But in the kind of 19th century context, there was a way that it became particularly pressing because in, at, in Germany, at least, the sort of dominant philosophical modes of thinking by the mid 19th century were really oriented around German idealism. So think about the speculative metaphysics of Hegel and Schelling. And so the thought was, here are scientists who are making concrete discoveries and advancing knowledge in these concrete ways. And then here are the German idealists talking about Geist or whatever that might be unfolding. And they're talking in these very abstract and difficult to understand sorts of ways. And so the sort of crisis was what good can philosophy do for us vis-a-vis -vis the acquisition of knowledge, given what science is accomplishing. So in response to this in the 19th century, there's a group of philosophers who embrace a positivist methodology. So according to this positive methodology, the thing that philosophers really should do is just try and be the handmaid to science. So science really makes the sort of epistemic discoveries that drive things forwards and philosophers really try and you know, clarify things after the fact or make some sort of accomplishment in service of science. And so the neo-Kantians think, look, we need to go back to Kant because there's a way to do philosophy, which is neither the sort of speculative metaphysics of German idealism, nor the sort of subservient philosophy of positivism. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, this is all polemical, you know, speaking of Neocantium. There's fine. lots of good positivist things. Um, and so um, what the Neocantians think Kant got right was both the need to remain grounded in facts. So facts of science, for example. So if you look at, say, the first critique or the prolegomena, right, Kant is very much oriented towards the body of knowledge established in, say, mathematics or in um, natural science. So to be a Kantian is to try to remain grounded in those things and not kind of fly off into metaphysical speculation. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that um, Kant they think, also got right, was the thought that there's still something the philosopher can do vis-a-vis -vis these facts that the scientist can't do, which is understand the a priori conditions that make these facts possible. So the neo-Kantians think, okay, Kant gives us a methodology that can ensure the ongoing value of philosophy by remaining wedded, grounded in the facts, but also trying to do something philosophically substantive of understanding the a priori conditions of those facts. So when the neo-Kantians say back to Kant, what they're saying is back to Kant's method as a way to try and cut a middle path between German idealism, metaphysics, and positivism. 
so that's kind of the broad um, scene of neo-Kantianism. And then there's different schools of neo-Kantianism. The two most famous are Marburg's neo-Kantianism, which I've mentioned, and another school that's called the Southwest or Baden School of Neo-Kantianism. And key figures here are people like Wilhelm Windelband and Heinrich Rickert. So to maybe now transition to saying some more about what it means to be a Marburg neo-Kantianism, sorry, a Marburg neo-Kantian. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's one neat way of carving up the distinction between Marburg and Southwest neo-Kantianism that's wrong. <laughs> so let me say that and then say what I think is right. So um, kind of traditionally Marburg neo-Kantianism has been understood as a scientistic school. And so what I mean by that is it's a school of neo-Kantianism that really cares about understanding the a priori conditions of mathematics and natural science. And then the Southwest school is then construed as a kind of neo-Kantianism that cares about value. So that cares about issues in say ethics and aesthetics. Um, and the reason that I say that this is um, misleading is that, in fact, philosophers from the Southwest School were just as interested in math and science as the Marburg neo-Kantians were. And so, too, were the Marburg neo-Kantians deeply invested in thinking through issues in ethics, aesthetics, religion, so on and so forth. So I think the best way to think about Marburg neo-Kantianism is really as a neo-Kantianism that's interested in the philosophy of culture. And what I mean by that is they think that, all right, philosophy has to stay wedded to the facts. And they think the facts that philosophy should orient around are, quote, facts of culture. So facts that pertain to our lives, not just as creatures who do math and science, but also as creatures who engage in art, who use language, who participate in religion, so on and so forth. And so the Marburg Neo-Kantians really want to think through, okay, what are the a priori conditions that make our cultural lives possible? And so Kassir is very much persuaded by this agenda, and it really sets his program um, going forward. But it's important for the Marburg Neo-Kantians that when we're thinking about um, what we're looking for, when we're thinking about, okay, what are these conditions, these a priori conditions that make our cultural lives possible? They think it's a mistake to try and cash out those conditions in psychological terms. So we can all think of what, you know, a psychological approach to say aesthetics or religion might look like. And they think that's not really the way to go. What we need is what they call an anti-psychologistic approach, where we really think about these universal structures that are above the sort of psyches of individuals that make culture possible. So it's a sort of anti-psychologistic approach to culture that I think really marks the Marburg School in ways that Kassir found really compelling. Um, So that's, I guess, background about neo-Kantianism and Marburg neo-Kantianism. The last part of your question was about how this really er distinction between substance and function serves as sort of a backdrop um, against which we we can understand Kassir's neo-Kantianism. Um, and to maybe, maybe situate the substance-function distinction a little bit um, it would be helpful to say a little bit more about why Kassir is also a Kantian, not just a neo-Kantian. Um, so I think for Kassir, one of the um, most compelling things about Kant uh, is Kant's Copernican revolution. So at the outset of the first critique, Kant is kind of surveying the battlefield of metaphysics and thinking through, all right, as the empiricists and rationalists have duked it out, nobody's won. And what does that tell us about, is there any hope for metaphysics at all? And so um, Kant thinks, well, we need to rethink our fundamental assumptions about what knowledge is or cognition is and what the objects of that cognition 
amount to. And so Kant's Copernican revolution involves this kind of radical hypothesis that, all right, what if instead of thinking that cognition is a process in which we sort of conform to objects, what if objects conform to our cognition? So what if the objects that we can cognize are ones that in some sense conform to the mind? And so Kant really runs with this. And I mean, of course, there's endless debates about how to think about Kant's Copernican revolution and the commitments um, that really fall out of it. But I think for Kassir, there's both a sort of ontological and an epistemic commitment that he inherits from Kant. Um, so the ontological commitment is a commitment to a certain kind of idealism, which in the book I call critical idealism. Well, also Kant calls it critical idealism, so that's not my not my coinage. Um, and so critical idealism says, look, the objects that we can cognize are things that depend on the mind. So these are what Kant calls appearances or phenomena. And he says, we cannot have cognition of things that are absolutely independent from the mind, which he calls things in themselves or noumena. So critical idealism says, look, the only cognition we can have um, is of objects that are appearances, not of things in themselves. So it's sort of ontological bit. And then the epistemic bit, as I just anticipated, is a thought about, okay, what's the scope of our cognition? And it, you know, you're a traditional rationalist, you think you absolutely can cognize things that are absolute, like God or the soul. And Kant says, no, no, those are beyond the limits of what we can know. The only things that we can know are these appearances that are mind dependent. So uh, I call that the sort of critical theory of cognition for Kassir. So all of this was to get us to understand what substance and function are. So um, I think substance is Kassir's synonym for things in themselves, or perhaps better put, for objects that are absolutely mind independent. Um, and function for Kassir is a way of talking about the structure of our mind that objects of cognition depend upon. So it's a way of talking about the sort of structures of our mind that appearances in Kantian parlance depend upon. So in the sort of Kant system, the sort of paradigmatic examples of these fundamental structures that appearances depend on are the forms of space and time and the categories like substance and causality. So if we kind of use these two concepts of substance and function and plug it into the sort of Kantian framework I was just talking about, one way to cash out the Kantian position is to say, look, the objects that we cognize are not substances, qua absolutely mind-independent objects, the objects that we cognize are ones that are dependent on the functions of the mind. So the way Kassir cashes out appearances is as function-dependent objects. And so what this means epistemically, on Kassir's view, we should not think of cognition as a process in which our mind somehow conforms to or copies substances we should instead think of cognition as this more constructive process through which the functions of our mind construct the appearances. And what we know are these functions that serve as the basis of appearances in this way. So I take the sort of substance function distinction to be a way of sort of recasting um, the sort of dialectic between, say, non-Kantian metaphysicians and Kant's position. Okay, great. Um, so that kind of leads naturally to um, a bunch of different questions that you deal with, you know, in the book regarding how this way of thinking about how we cognize um, provides a ground for his philosophy of mathematics, his philosophy of nature, 
and then more broadly, as you mentioned before, the philosophy of culture, right? The symbolic forms. Um, so let's, I guess, start with um, the mathematics, right? Because there's a clear um, relation there between his view of mathematics in terms of structural relationships, the functions, and then, uh, you know, various forms, I guess, of structural realism today in, in math or, or science, you know, philosophy of science. Um, so how does he... How does his philosophy of mathematics go? Um, how, do, how does he apply this distinction is, um, to, um, to that particular um, area? And, and I should say, you know, the crisis that you mentioned before uh, in terms of, well, you know, since science, you know, including mathematics so more broadly, is making all these advances, right, in terms of non- Euclidean geometry, for example, or in terms of, um, you know, relativity and quantum mechanics. I mean, you know, Kant's forms, Kant specifically was like, well, the forms of our mind, you know, you, uh, you know, conform to Euclidean geometry and, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the objects of science are, you know, Newtonian, right? And, and of course that's, you know, well, you know, that's kind of an embarrassment <laughs> after, you know, so, so to be a Kantian, you have to kind of explain away those particular um, mistakes. Um, so how does he, how does he kind of do that? How does he deal with those particular challenges to the Kantian picture, um, you know, using his, you know, his, his critical um, idealism, as you put it? I think one way to really um, think about Kassir's early work, <laughs> uh, particularly in substance function, but then his later works um, like Einstein's theory of relativity and determinism and indeterminism in modern physics, it's really an attempt to um, show that we don't have to abandon the Kantian approach to philosophy of mathematics and science because of Kant's commitment to Euclidean geometry and Newtonian physics. So. I think this is also part of what makes Kassir a neo-Kantian. It's noticing that Kant had this overly restricted conception of what, say, space, time, substance, causal relations might be. And part of the effort is to really update Kant's system in a way to see how it can nevertheless be able to accommodate these sorts of really remarkable advances in, say, non-Euclidean geometry or in relativity or quantum mechanics. And so Kassir is very much on the kind of forefront of the defending the Kantian line, but not necessarily defending Kant. But that's okay, because that's part of what it is to be a neo-Kantian. You can throw out the things in Kant that you don't like. Um, so thinking through Kassir's project with respect to philosophy of mathematics in particular, one thing that he's, of course, trying to do is do justice to these advances, both in geometry, but also advances in number theory with respect to irrational numbers, transfinite numbers, negative numbers, so on and so forth that we see um, really emerging in the 19th century. And so Kassir kind of with this sort of substance function background takes us to starting point. OK, <laughs> how are we? best to account for something like the objects and the knowledge that we have in mathematics, especially in light of these new advances. And Kassir thinks, okay, if you have a sort of substance-based approach to mathematics, you're going to have to think, all right, mathematical objects are some kind of substance and mathematical knowledge is a matter of somehow copying or conforming to those substances, which gives a pretty um, empiricist or maybe Platonist sounding picture of what we're up to in mathematics. But Kassir says, you know, if you actually look at what is going on in the work of mathematicians like Dedekind or Poncelet or Felix Klein or David Hilbert, you'll notice that they don't endorse a substance-based approach at all. Instead, Kassir thinks if you really look at them, what they're doing is they're giving us a sort of function-based picture of 
mathematics. And so kind of at the core of Kassir's um, philosophy of mathematics is this position, which in the book I call logical structuralism. So according to logical structuralism, mathematics is best understood as the science of ideal structures that are constructed on the basis of logical functions. So there's kind of a foundations element to logical structuralism and a ontological element. So uh, when we're talking about the foundations of mathematics, we're trying to think through, okay, what, what really is the basis of mathematics? Is it platonic forms? Is it substance, like I was just saying. Um, And so one popular um, position to think through the foundations of mathematics that's emerging around the turn of the 20th century is logicism. So Frege and Russell are defending um, logicist accounts of the foundations of mathematics, according to which really the foundations of mathematics is logic. And so Kassir is very sympathetic to this view. So when he says, look, mathematical objects really are these structures that are constructed on the basis of logical functions. He's putting logical functions at the foundation of mathematics. So he's a logicist in that sense. So that's kind of the foundational component of logical structuralism. And then as for the ontological element, on Kassira's view, mathematical objects just are these ideal structures that are generated on the basis of logical relations. So if we're thinking about, say, what the natural numbers are, Kassir thinks they are these ideal structures, these sort of systems that have been generated on this logical basis. And he thinks that if you look at the number theory defended, for example, by Dedekind, you'll see him cashing out natural numbers and irrational numbers in exactly those terms. So Dedekind has this very deductive approach to uh, the numbers such that he gives this account of how we can really deduce natural numbers and irrational numbers on the basis of logical functions. And what that means is that, in turn, the numbers really are just these sort of ideal structures. And Kassir thinks that The same sort of approach is something that helps us make sense of, say, the sort of projective geometry that we're getting in Poncelet or Klein's Erlangen program, where he kind of gets us to think through the hierarchy of different kinds of geometry from Euclidean to affine and projective. So, I mean, putting all of these details aside, Kassir thinks, okay, the right approach to mathematics is this function-based approach that says, look, mathematical objects are objects that conform to functions, namely the logical functions that are laid out in these various theories. So he thinks that really um, the this functional approach that goes all the way back to Kant and Kant's Copernican revolution is the best way to be making sense of these new advances in mathematics. So his approach, Kassir's approach remains very much Kantian in spirit, even though Kassir's logicism is very much in conflict with Kant's um, more intuition-based approach to mathematics. But that's sort of the kind of contours of how Kassir is deploying the substance function dialectic in an effort to update the Kantian system to do justice to these radical new advances in mathematics. Great. Perfect. Um, so let me, I want to get to, you know, his, his greatest opus, I suppose, the, the three books, I think, The Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, where he, he kind of pans out to uh, philosophy of culture um, and not just, you know, of which, you know, mathematical thinking and scientific thinking are just components, right? There's also the arts, there's language, there's history, there, you know, all the other, you know, there's, there's law, right? Right. All that stuff. Um, so culture in a very, very broad sense. Um, and he calls this philosophy of culture, his philosophy of symbolic forms. Um, uh, and at this point, I mean, there's a, there, there enters a kind of a, a Hegelian um, 
uh, shadow into everything because you, you, as you describe it, it's sort of uh, a symbolic form as a objective manifestation of the activity of spirit, right? Um, which kind of seems a very Hegelian sort of influence. Um, and each of the areas in culture uh, have their own kind of symbolic form, you know, art, of language, of history, of science, of math, and so forth. Um, and each of these is irreducible, you know, in some sense, autonomous from the others. And there's also a sense in which there's a um, teleological notion here where there, there's a movement towards, again, Hegelian, towards a consciousness of, of freedom, right, for all these different symbolic forms. So that's, that's a very broad kind of question, but the whole the whole idea of the philosophy of symbolic forms is itself, you know, kind of very, you know, broad, um, uh, you know, aspect of his, of his thought. So maybe you could, you know, give us a little insight into, you know, what is this philosophy of symbolic forms? What is a symbolic form? Um, and, you know, what's, what's the influence of, of Hegel in this aspect? And of course, how does this relate back to his, his uh, Marburg neo-Kantianism? Right. So maybe kind of one way to to try and enter into the question um, is to kind of think a little bit about, okay, what is it to do a philosophy of culture? Um, part of that is a question of how are we understanding what culture is, which is, of course, a very complicated question. But also part of it is the question of oh, what sort of philosophic methodology would we use to really try and study culture? And again, there's kind of a recurrence of the question about the ongoing value of philosophy, given that there's lots of other disciplines that study culture. So if you have art history or literature or history or, say, linguistics, you know, why do we really need philosophy to, to come in and study culture given the really valuable work that's being done in these other disciplines. Um, and so as I see it, Kassir kind of in keeping with the method of Marburg neo-Kantianism says, okay, to do a philosophy of culture, we have to remain wedded to the facts of culture as they are studied by people in other disciplines. So it's the sort of remaining grounded in the facts element but then he thinks, but what the philosopher can really do, which is a distinctive contribution, is try and understand the sort of a priori structures or universal conditions that allow culture to manifest in all of these different ways. And so Kassir is really going to try and give an account of that sort of a priori universal basis that allows for culture to not just appear on the scene, but historically develop in all of these different ways. And so in really trying to execute this project, the sort of sensitivity to the historical dynamism of culture is something that you can see kind of Hegel's handprints all over as Kassir's thought is, all right, if we're going to understand what culture is, we can't just Think about like the abstract thought of art or the abstract thought of religion. We need to really be looking at how art, religion, language, etc., really develop through time. And so there's going to be a sort of dynamical component that's built into the, the sort of system of culture that Kassir defends. So to try and kind of lay out the basis of culture, Kassir says one way to think about kind of the most basic condition that makes culture possible is this notion of spirit. The German word is Geist, which is notoriously difficult to translate as either spirit or mind. It's also notoriously difficult to know what in the world Geist is. <laughs> so um, Kassir, I think, understands um, Geist or spirit as a sort of inner subjective activity that we as human beings collectively participate in through which we construct the cultural world around us. So I think that Geist is really a way of understanding kind of this universal human activity, this universal human project of building up the cultural world 
that all of us, regardless of when or where, when we were, we were born, were all participating in some way. So um, this sort of kind of pretty humanist reading of what spirit is, is different from a um, super metaphysical reading such that Geist is God, in effect, and the unfolding of Geist is the unfolding of God. But for Kassir, we should understand Geist in terms of the sort of human activity of building a cultural world. And so to try and think through how it is that Geist or spirit builds the cultural world, Kassir thinks, all right, Geist is really something that manifests both in our individual lives and something that manifests in a large scale world in the arts and the science and the mathematics that we see in our cultural world. So he really wants to try and think through how Geist is manifesting both in individual psyches and individual persons and on this sort of large scale. Sometimes I think of it a bit like um, when we're at the outset of the Republic and we're going to work our way through the sort of analogy between the soul and the Republic. There's a little bit of that going on here. So on the one hand, Kazir wants to think through what's going on kind of in our souls as individuals in a cultural world and then what's going on in that cultural world more generally. Um, and so then he has a pretty elaborate account of the individual side and the cultural world side. Um, so maybe I'll just try and say a few quick things about that. Um, so when Kassir is analyzing sort of what it is to be an individual human being in the cultural world, he's really trying to think through what is our lived experience? So what is it like to be conscious? And he thinks that there's different ways that we can be conscious of the world. Sometimes we're more conscious in what he calls an expressive way when we're attuned to the sort of subjective valence of things. So things like emotions and affects. Sometimes he thinks that we're conscious of things in what he describes as a presentational way of being conscious. And so what that means is we're, we're really attuned to kind of constant objects and properties in the world around us. So I just looked out my window and I saw a car cross the street. So in that mode of consciousness, I'm thinking of that car as something that's distinct from me. It's not really an emotional experience. It's, you know, it's a fine car, but it doesn't really, you know, inspire me. Um, so in the presentational mode of consciousness, we are attuned to just kind of objects around us. And then there's a third mode of consciousness that he describes in terms of, quote, pure signification. So in this mode of consciousness, what we're really geared into are that are ideal. And what I mean by that are things that are ideal concepts or principles or relations. So if suppose I see a wavy line and I'm immediately thinking about the sine function, the sine function is an ideal uh, concept or relation on Kassir's view. And so sometimes when we're conscious, we're really kind of focusing on these more abstract, universal ideal things, as opposed to say the objects in our environment and yet again, as opposed to, say, our emotions or how we're feeling about things. So Kassir thinks, all right, our lived experience can kind of shift between these expressive, presentative, and pure significative poles. And one of the reasons that I just went through all of that <laughs> is because to then understand the sort of cultural world, right, the way in which we build up the world around us through spirit. Kassir thinks that attending to these expressive, presentative, and significative tendencies clue us into the ways in which we build up the cultural world around us. So in this mode, Kassir is really thinking about, okay, there are different domains in culture, math, science, art, religion, history. And what he's trying to do is unpack what's going on in each of those cultural domains. And his word for these different cultural domains is, quote, a symbolic form. Um, and so when Kassir is talking about symbolic forms, he's thinking about these sort of objective practices that emerge from Geist, emerge from our collaborative activities. 
through which we build up the cultural world. And he thinks that in these different symbolic forms, as I said, we notice different tendencies in how we're ordering, organizing the world. So on his view, myth and religion tend in a more expressive direction. So they organize the world and they organize us in more affective or feeling-based ways. He thinks that he thinks that language uh, and history and technology are things that organize the world in these more objective sorts of ways. And then finally, he thinks that mathematics and natural science and also right or recht is something, are symbolic forms that organize the world in these more significative ways. So they're more oriented towards ideal relations like mathematical formulae or scientific principles or moral principles. And so Kassir tries to like bring some order into thinking about kind of the structure of the symbolic forms by tracing them back to these sort of expressive, presentative, and significative tendencies that are embedded in our very lived consciousness. So this is, if you're asking Kassir what culture is, it's basically everything, right? It's both our lived experience and it is the the cultural world that we build up um, around ourselves. So that's the sort of kind of grand vision. Um, well, maybe maybe we can because um, uh, we're 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 um, we're getting a little close on time, and I, I I thought maybe it might be a good idea to apply that to. Um, uh, what you the what you call recht, you know the right the law and morality ethics and politics. Um, so what's uh, one of the interesting things in that regard was how um, you describe how the the uh, symbolic form of myth comes to play a role in right right and in particular in its resurgence in um, in fascism right in his you know the the time that he was living. I mean, this obviously was very foremost in his mind. Could you, could you say a, a bit about the symbolic form of, of right and then how myth kind of gets in there? So when we're looking at Kassir's sort of system of symbolic forms, he thinks that each symbolic form is autonomous from the others. So the sort of kind of what drives myth is different from what drives right or different from what drives mathematics. And he thinks that there's also a sort of, as you mentioned, a teleological progression among the forms as different forms enable us to become more conscious of our freedom than other forms. So he thinks that myth, because it's so embedded in the sort of affective mode, doesn't really clarify to us the sort of freedom that we have as agents who build up the world around us in the way that something like natural science, mathematics, or right does. And so what he thinks that right does as a symbolic form is it really gives sort of structure and order to our social lives. So natural science gives structure and order to the natural world. Right gives structure and order to the social world. And he thinks that you can follow a sort of historical progression in the development of right towards a more universal theory of right that he thinks really has its epitome in sort of classical liberal theories of natural right, where natural right has its basis in our autonomy and then enshrines that autonomy through, say, um, democratic constitutions. So Kassir thinks that if you look at the development of how we've ordered and organized our social world through right, you can see this progression towards freedom. I um, mean, so in that historical development, we're seeing these, again, Hegelian themes emerging as these symbolic forms develop over time. But Kassir takes one of the important ways that his view differs from Hegel, at least his reading of Hegel, is that Kassir thinks Hegel is committed to there being a sort of necessary forward-moving progress in culture such that you start from less universal and less conscious of freedom positions, and then you develop towards um, cultural forms in which you have more universality and higher degrees of consciousness of freedom. And Kassir thinks 
yes, that can happen. It can happen that history progresses that way. And we saw that as history progressed, for example, towards a sort of classical conception of natural right. But Kassira thinks that progress in culture is not guaranteed. And he thinks that this progress is something that can be shaken and indeed was shaken, for example, by the rise of fascism. So Kassira's diagnosis of what happens with the rise of fascism is that there's a resurgence in mythical thinking. And he thinks that this is something that was a uh, um, aim of fascist governments. They tried to develop techniques to really inculcate a mythical mode of thinking where people were organizing the world, not in terms of these sort of universal conceptions of natural right and humanity and equality, but instead in terms of notions like the hero, i.e. the dictator, or notions that are racist like white supremacy or some sort of sense that the state really is absolute truth and absolute power. And so Kassir thinks what happened was um, the fascist governments developed, say, propaganda and new rituals that got people to buy back into this mythical mode of thinking. And Kassir thinks that there was a complete regression in how our social relations were organized away from this sort of um, liberalist achievement to the sort of devastating fascist situation that you saw um, and that he lived in the 30s and 40s. And so for Kassir, right, can develop in a way that gives us an increased consciousness of freedom and that protects and enshrines freedom, but we have to safeguard it. And if we don't safeguard it, then it's possible for us to regress to these more mythical modes of thinking that have, again, the sort of devastating consequences that they do. So Kassir does believe in the progress of culture, but he also thinks that it's not ever guaranteed and that it's one of our really basic ethical duties to really try and protect the sort of freedoms and advances that we've achieved through culture or else um, devastating consequences might ensue. Good. Um, well, that, that kind of brings us to the end. And I, um, it also brings us to the, to the present in a way, because I wonder, you know, I'd like to end with a question about where, what you're doing next, you know, what you're working on now, um, if you're following this up with something uh, entirely different, or whether, you know, there's some sort of continuation. And in a way, um, from what you just said, one might say, well, you know, there's there seems to be a plausible way to apply Kassira to our current situation, you know, in the United States or maybe even globally in terms of this, you know, regression to a more mythical uh, mythical mode of, of symbolic form. Um, so to wrap up, I mean, what, what are you working on now? I mean, what's, what's, uh, what's the follow-up to the book or what's el what else is on your horizon? I certainly think that there's much work to be done of thinking through a kind of Kassirian diagnosis of um, the present state of the world, but I will not be doing that because as happens, I have got socks back into Kant. <laughs> um, so right now I am I'm working on a monograph in which I'm defending a systematic reading of Kant's theory of imagination, in which I think through what his imagination does, not his imagination, what he thinks our imaginations do in theoretical, aesthetic, and practical context. So that's one thing that um, I am in the throes of right now. But as is also always the case, um, it's never just Kant for me. So the sort of second big project um, is doing work on a neglected um, phenomenologist. Her name's Edith Landman Kalischer. Um, she's Jewish, um, really contemporary with Kassir, um, who's doing really fascinating work on um, the phenomenology of value, particularly aesthetic value and um, ethical value. And so um, in addition to going back to Kant, I'm going forward <laughs> from him to this project on Edith Landman Kalischer. Great. Well, I mean, there's so much 
you know, more that we, we could have talked about, but um, I'll leave it to listeners to, to, to look at your, your book and, um, you know, see what else you've said, because there is so much to learn from, from this book. I really, uh, I really appreciate your having, your having taken the time to think through it and to apply your background to making it, um, making Kassira understood to me and, and presumably to many other readers as well. So thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy, and I wish you the best of luck um, with your current projects. Thanks so much, and thanks for your interest in Kassira, too. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to my interview with Samantha Mothern, Assistant Professor at Harvard University. We've been talking about her new book, Kassira, which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.